<laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, good day, mate. Put another shrimp on a Barbie. <laughs> That's fantastic. You got to You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? I'm so delighted to have Michael Neely on the show today. Michael is a former professional actor and medieval knight turned writer, motivational speaker, personal development coach and the creator of a transformational program, The Art of Forgetting. He recently started a wonderful podcast called Consciously Speaking, which he interviewed me on last week, in which he interviews some of today's most intriguing thought leaders and conscious teachers. He's appeared in feature films with Mel Gibson and Kevin Costner, worked on stage with Andre Brower and Kathleen Chalfont, and had reoccurring roles in several popular soap operas. His studies in character development took place both on and off camera and ultimately fueled his desire to pursue personal development and consciousness training as a profession. His soon-to-be-released book, The Art of Forgetting, is an essential element for anyone about to embark on already on the path of personal growth and discovery. It is a usable set of tools to help you uncover and unplug the underlying stories you've created that are now hindering your life's journey. Not only is he a masterful storyteller, he's also a masterful story eraser, helping you unwind the past and open up to the future of infinite possibility. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How the heck are you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm fantastic. So great to have you on the show. I'm so excited to have a chat with you today. You know what's really intriguing about your story is that you found consciousness through your acting. How did that come about? It was kind of a circuitous path to get here, but part of it came through you know, wanting to be successful at what I was doing. And so I was learning from other masters in personal development uh, while I was building my own skills as an actor. But then where it all started to tie together was as an actor, you do character studies. And so one of the first things I do when I read a script is look at what does the actor say about himself? You know, like often in, in a script, he might say, hey, I'm the meanest son of a bitch in town or whatever, you know. And then you look at what do other people say about the actor or what do other people say about that? They might say it to their face like you're a jerk or they might say it to somebody else, hey, I think so-and-so is, you know, really wonderful. And you use that information to build your role, your character. And then I realized we do this in life. Yeah. You know, what are the things that I say about myself that I now live into? And what are the things other people say about me I fulfill? I live into their expectations of me. So it kind of all tied hand in hand. But that's uh, when I stopped acting, it was like, okay, this is where I want to go. Fantastic. Look, I've often thought about this. I've often thought about how actors play different roles. And sometimes they seem to channel different when they're playing characters. They seem to channel that character. And what's really Mm -hmm. spooky is when they do, they actually look like that character. I was looking at a guy online recently who is a comedian. He's an impersonator. And he does all these amazing impersonations of these different people dead or alive. And as he's doing it, he actually looks like them. It's bizarre how he takes on that energy. Really, and I think it's amazing that not more actors have looked into this more deeply. 
what was your story? How did you first start noticing that something else was going on? What happened for me is as I was doing some of this personal development, and, and mind you, this was still while I was in the world of acting, I started to realize some of the stories that I was stuck with. I started to notice where some of the challenges that I was facing, uh, as an example, to become a member of Screen Actors Guild here in the United States, it's, it's really difficult. They set it up as a catch-22, and that is that to become a member of the Screen Actors Guild, you have to get work in a set movie. And you can't get work in the movie. You have to be a member of the Screen Actors Guild. It's a catch-22. And so I started you know, booking the soap operas and having you know, much greater success. So during that process, it really opened my eyes to like this other world, this other side. And it just intrigued me so much. And I, I've always felt that calling to it. And so then later, eventually, when I stopped acting, it just felt like a natural transition. Mm. Did you have anything strange happen to you when you were a little boy? Were you a psychic kid or aware of more things that other people are I, aware of? I was more like a psycho kid. Uh, <laughs> I... um. No, nothing really comes to me. I was more of a, um, just kind of a, not really a brainiac, but I was always a smart kid and learned things really quickly and very observant. I think that's been one of the things that I've been really good at. And maybe part of that is intuitiveness. And I, I think I do have a certain level of intuition that's pretty spot on. So Michael, what got you into acting? Why did you want to become an actor? Uh, you know, you're taking me way back now, yeah. Karin. It it actually happened when I was was in fourth grade, yeah. And uh, that was the year I got bit by the acting bug. We were doing a production for a fourth grade class of The Prince and the Pauper, and I was originally cast as like fourth spear from the left. You know, that's the old joke in the theater world. And so we're doing the rehearsals, and the kid who was cast to play the pauper. For the life, I could not memorize his lines. But as I'm standing there at every rehearsal, you know, holding my spear and hearing the lines, I, I memorized them. And we literally got to the day before opening, and the teacher kept on this guy, you've got to learn your lines. And, and he couldn't do it. And by the day before, she was ready to cancel the production. And I just said, uh, or my hand said, I know the lines. And she was <laughs> amazed that someone else knew them. So I stepped into the role of the pauper, and it was great, and that was it. And did you find it hard being in the acting world? I mean, there's this huge thought form out there that says don't give up your day job you know you're never going to make it did, <laughs> did that I mean obviously you were talking before about you know your own limiting ideas and beliefs came up when you were trying to succeed did that also come up you know I shouldn't go for my dreams I should do something normal <laughs> like get a real job yeah as a matter of fact it, it did come up at one point for a while what came about was as a matter of fact I was engaged to a girl who was also an actress. And at first when we got engaged, the plan was, you know, we we're gonna move to California, pursue our acting dreams together. Yeah. And then all of a sudden she decided she really didn't want to do that. And her mother said, well, why don't you just go out there and give it a year? Mm. And to me, that would be like telling a child, okay, you've got a year to learn to walk. I'm, you know, like a, a baby, you've got a year to learn to walk. And if you don't walk within the year, that's it, give it up. You know, mm. it's like it was in my blood. It's like, uh, I'm going to give it however long it takes. I'm an actor. And so, yeah, there were people saying that, you know, don't quit your day job and all this stuff. But I managed to have great success at it. So I was one of the lucky. How did you find that perseverance to keep going and to believe in yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. I think part of it came from me not looking at rejection, if you will. So many times you go on an audition and a lot of actors frame it as rejection yeah. and it gets to them. 
But for me, I just looked at it like, hey, you know, there are so many people competing for that role. I just wasn't right for that role in the vision of the director or the casting director, whoever it was who was making the decision. I just wasn't right for it. It had nothing to do with how good of an actor I was mm. necessarily. It was my acting skills that got me the audition in the first place. And so I never took it personally when I didn't get cast. Yeah, that's just such an important thing to be reminded mm -hmm. of. I think that so many people take rejection so badly. They take it so personally as if it has something to do with who they are as a person, as a being, instead of just, okay, next, that wasn't right for me, let's move on. Because a lot of young singers come on my radio show as well and they put their heart and soul into their music and put it out there and not everyone loves it. And <laughs> right. <laughs> and also with mm -hmm. people's teaching as well. It, there are so many conscious teachers out there and, and we're all spruiking the same message. It's really the message of love, but we're all doing it in a really different way and and not everyone will hear your message there are different people that will hear different teachers or the same song but sung in a different way so I think that yeah. message of don't take anything personally you know <laughs> the right people will yeah. be there for you to applaud you to do your work it's not about who you are it's uh, just about a vibrational match you're spot on that's absolutely right all right then, Michael, give us your best Aussie accent. You're the acting expert. Let's hear it. Uh, yeah, right, right. Yeah, g'day, mate. Put another shrimp on a barbie. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> I did an audition once with an Australian accent. It was fun. Did you? What was the audition yeah. for? I can't, I can't remember what it was, but they actually wanted an Aussie for the role. And so <laughs> this is how far I stretch for it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to totally fake it. I'm going to you know, make it like my resume that I'm from Australia. And so I went in there pretending to be Australian and I didn't get the part, but I don't think it was because of the accent. Hopefully it wasn't. <laughs> uh, look, you've lost the audition immediately when you say an Aussie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Americans say, you Aussies. <laughs> you Aussies. We say Aussie. <laughs> Aussie. 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 <laughs> Now, look, an Australian accent is really hard to do. I remember Meryl Streep did a role where she played um, the dingo got my baby. Uh, oh, right, what, right. What was her name? Oh, gosh, I've gone blank. And uh, she struggled with the accent, and she's the accent queen, you know. She is, yeah. <laughs> I remember some of, the, some of the slang is great from down under, like, yeah, pick up a slab of tennies. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> You've got to remember the right stuff, you know. <laughs> I know. I've got a girlfriend who's been here for about oh, 15, maybe even 18 years now from South Africa, and she still laughs at some of the things that come out of my mouth. She's like, <laughs> what, what does that, that mean? mean? <laughs> yeah, like, like going into a bar and I'll have a pot of heavy. <laughs> I don't even know that one, a pot of heavy. <laughs> uh, well, it's, see, and I had to learn that because I guess the difference is your light beer in Australia is different than our light beer here. Light beer up here means less calories, but light beer in Australia means yeah. uh, less alcohol content. Right, right. I and and so the heavy meant full alcohol, and I guess a pot of heavy means like a pint or, you know, your mug. <laughs> mug on a pot of heavy. Yeah, a pot of heavy. <laughs> have you been? I love Australia. Have you been have. down under? Where, where were you yeah. here? I was in uh, 97, and I was in the St. Kilda area. Down in, in, in uh, Melbourne. Ah, Melbourne. okay, Melbourne. Yeah. Say Melbourne again. Melbourne. Ah, you say it so well. So this is what <laughs> Americans say, Melbourne. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I've been to Melbourne. 
Ah, you're a, you're a born again Aussie. <laughs> it, and I love to drink the VB. You can't get it up here, but I love it. <laughs> That's too funny. So on your journey to becoming a consciousness expert, a teacher, would you call yourself a teacher, a meditation teacher? A... Gosh, I, I kind of do a little bit of all of it. I actually am a, a certified Dharma teacher. A so Dharma teacher. Dharma. Yeah, Tell so me I... what a Dharma teacher is. So I teach the Buddha Dharma. So I, I'm not really practicing that. Like I don't have students and I don't, you know, have classes set up, but I did complete a certification in that. And what I essentially use it for is really to just share stories and meditations. Right. And so I and I am a meditation guide. And then some of the other stuff that I do, I consider myself a conscious thought evangelist, which is wow. what I'm doing with my podcast, mm -hmm. consciously speaking. And then I've got my book out, which is it's not that it's so much about consciousness in the terms that we tend to think of it nowadays, but it's more, it's called the art of forgetting, and it's more about erasing a lot of our underlying stories so that we can start with a clean slate. Mm -hmm. And how do you do that? How do you erase a negative story? If I come to you as a client and I say, I've always felt like I'm not good enough, how would you help me get over that? I would say erase, erase, erase. <laughs> <laughs> no. What we do is first we would have to get to the true root of the story. So in other words, you might say, well, let me give you a real world example. I have a client who's dealing with money issues mm -hmm. and he's kind of hit a financial ceiling for himself. The problem is not that he can't earn more, but more as we started to discover it is he has this part of him that feels like I don't deserve more. There are a lot of people out there in the world who are starving and who am I to be making more and it's not fair. Uh -huh. And so you can see that the underlying story has more to do with fairness. And, and so we dug into where this came up for him. When did this story evolve? And it's so interesting. You start to hear like childhood things that kind of started to cement these things in your mind. And so we work to kind of rewrite the story. So the difference is the events still happened, but he made up a story about the actual event and it's the story that he made up about it that we need to reshape. Mm. And so we start there mm. and, and that's the way the process works well, when I'm working with clients. Do you do it in a meditative state or do you do it just as a conscious communication, a, a conversation? Yeah, it, it starts out as a conversation and mm -hmm. then we actually get playful with it mm -hmm. because, you know, the thing is about our stories, we, we're so trapped in the seriousness of it. Oh mm -hmm. my God, it's so true, you know? And, yep. and when you start to play with it, I mean, there's an exercise that I do where I actually have them write their story out as though it were a novel, you mm -hmm. know, and, mm -hmm. and just that particular story, all the things that they can remember around it. And then I have them read that story out loud. And then I just start to do goofy stuff while they're reading that story. And I'll have them read it over and over again out loud. And at first it's very dramatic, even to the point of being melodramatic. And then by the fourth or fifth reading, as I'm doing goofy stuff in the background or playing goofy music or anything, the story starts to let go and they start to see, oh my God, what a crock of crap this story is. There's no truth in it. 
Yeah, yeah. They start to break the chains of the truth of the story. Yeah. You know, one of my favourite teachers is Byron Katie and that's that's the crux of her work oh, is her. like, is it true? Because we only stress out because we believe our stressful thoughts. She had cancer, she went blind and all the time that she had these things happen to her, she wasn't stressed in any way, shape or form because she didn't believe her stressful thoughts around what was happening. So she thought, wow, I've never been blind before. This will be interesting. And then she goes <laughs> off to the doctor and I get to meet a nice doctor. I get to have this experience and she has an operation and then she gets a sight back. But she doesn't allow a terrible situation to destroy her life. She, she sees it as an adventure. So she creates a new story around the circumstances of her life. Love it. Love that woman. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm. I do too. Byron mm. Katie's awesome. Mm. Mm. Awesome. If only we could all be like Byron Katie. I, I remember she was interviewed by Oprah and Oprah said to her, do you mean to say that for 25 years you haven't been angry or frustrated or upset or sad? She said, no, no. She said, do you mean to say that in all that time you haven't had a stressful thought? And she said, oh, no, I've had millions of stressful thoughts. I just don't believe them. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the difference, yeah, isn't I it? Actually, it really is. Mm. And I actually have a, a little uh, post that I put on some of my sites. I, I created a little meme and using the thinker, you know, the, uh, the uh, statue. Yeah. And, and the meme I have is sometimes I can't believe the thoughts I have. And I'm trying to do that more frequently, you know, because because it's true. We, you know, we so believe our thoughts and it's like, come on, don't. The, our minds just continually work. That's they're designed to think. And if we just learn to just let go of them, mm. it's so life can be so much more easeful. But then at the same in the same token, it's good to believe a positive thought. So you might have a thought wow, I'm really good at this. I'm amazing. And then your negative ego will come in and say, no, you're not. And it'll <laughs> and you will say, yeah, I can't believe that I'm really amazing. I'm just average like everyone else. So, so it's good to believe a positive thought or a, a blissful thought. So you've got to be discerning about which thoughts you want to believe. Obviously, using your guidance system, if it's a positive thought, it's lined up with your truth. It, if it feels negative, it's lined up with what's not your truth with a exactly. bogus story, as you would say. Yeah, and, and that's bogus, why I call it. Sorry, bogus is an Australian thing, I think. <laughs> no, no, we say it up here too. Oh, cool. We say bogus as well. Yeah. All right, yeah, cool. No, but you're absolutely right, Karen. And the thing is, that's why I call it the art of forgetting, because it's about selectively letting go of the stories that don't support you, the stories that don't enhance your life. Exactly. Mm. You know? Yeah. And I'm replace it. You know, because that's the other piece, too, I was going to add is that we're we are the ones who are creating our story. We're the ones writing the book that is our life. Mm -hmm. So why not write one that empowers you? Mm -hmm. Write a story that builds you up and doesn't tear you down. Yeah. Feels good, is fun, is adventurous, exciting, mm -hmm. passionate. Look, one of the reason I, I went on radio four years ago was because a lot of the stories that perpetuate the negative ideas we have about ourselves come through the media. The media is just pumping out constant stories of what you've got to look out for, who's going to get you, how you're a victim. And when I studied the mind and how we work and I saw that we are in this collective hypnosis 
of dumbing down and being disempowered by the media, I thought, I really felt strongly that I had to do something in my own way, something just little. If I could just get on radio and pump out some more empowering stories, I would be a little drop in the ocean of this massive media that we have in our world that's telling us life is hard and we need to struggle. So that's why I put fascinating people like you on radio that have stories that show us how we can overcome our limiting ideas about ourselves and we can live into our dreams. Mm. And that's the reason I have these podcasts as well, to create more of an awareness of that. So you're doing the same thing with your show. Your show, Consciously Speaking, is interviewing some incredible thought leaders and inspired minds. Including you. (laughs) Including me, (laughs) that's it. And who's been one of the teachers that you've been really impressed with, conversations that you've had on your show? Yeah, gosh, it's, it's, well, that's almost like two different questions for me because sometimes some of the best conversations I've had, I don't feel are necessarily people that are teaching me, but that inspire me to be a better teacher. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I've really had some great conversations with some wonderful people. Uh, One of my favorites was... Dov Baron. This guy, he's one of he was rated in Inc. magazine as one of the top 100 speakers to have for an event. He's just a powerhouse. You know, he's got really good, vibrant energy, and he more inspired me to be like, oh yeah, that's the that's the kind of speaker that I want to be. And then I've had some just amazing coaches on there, like Dr. Kathleen Hendricks, Katie, as as we know her. She's amazing. Just I actually practice a lot of what she teaches. And so as far as a teacher goes, I've, I've learned a great deal from her in that respect. What does she teach, Michael? She actually teaches quite a bit. She's really on a, a bent right now in the whole uh, body wisdom, uh, what they call BQ, our body intelligence. And okay. so that's what she's on right now. But some of the great things that I've learned from Katie and I've shared in some of my episodes are about talking about the microscopic truth and not having withholds. And I did a whole episode almost practically on, on withholds, which is just these little things that you that get you and then you don't say anything about them mm-hmm. in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it could be as simple as, uh, you know, you left a dish in the sink the other day and it really irked me. And you don't say anything. And then there's a sock on the floor that you got to pick up and throw. And you don't say anything. And, and eventually all these little withholds can build up pressure until eventually you find somebody, maybe your partner blows up at you because you left the toilet seat up or something silly, you know, and yeah, it's like, wow. whoa, where, where'd that come from? Oh, yeah. Wow. I used to be married to a withhold. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm yeah, really so you know. relating to this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here's his logic. I want to keep the peace. You know, I'm a peacemaker. I don't want to stir the pot. But the resentment would would just build and build and build. He's a beautiful man that was extremely helpful. You know, you'd say jump, he'd say how high. But then this resentment would build. Everyone's always asking stuff of me and then this withholding, not speaking my truth, not not Mm. saying, no, I don't want to do that. And I used to say to him often, oh, can you go and pick up Annika from the bus stop? I don't feel like it. This is my daughter. And he'd sort of look at, he'd flash this look of, I'm so comfortable on this couch doing nothing. Do I have to get up and get in the car? And, I, and I'd read his mind and I'd say, it's not mandatory. No one's holding a gun to your head. There is an option to say no. But in his mind, there wasn't an option to say no. And he, mm-hmm. would, he would withhold that, but I really want to say no. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 
fascinating. Yeah, and that can be incredible. And actually getting in touch with your authentic no, I also, we talked a lot about that in another episode too, because that's a whole other element of just being able to say no is so freeing yes. and powerful. And, and, and you're right, because the thing is, when you don't say no, if you do something, and, and it's one thing to not say no and do something, and, and then to withhold that you really didn't want to and the anger that builds up, which is what your ex was doing. And yeah, it can, it can be crazy. And another thing that can kill a relationship. So yeah, yeah. Well, I actually it eventually did kill our relationship because mm -hmm. there was no freedom in this man's life. He was seeking it through his spiritual practice, but he was not being it in his mental practice, I suppose, because mm. he had this underlying belief that you know, he had to be there for everybody. It's something he decided as a child. I have to be there and look after everybody. But the truth was, maybe he didn't feel like he had freedom around that choice. Whereas when yeah. you decide that, because I am helping people all the time, I, but I love it because I love people. And there's a freedom around that. But as soon as I feel like I'm doing too much and I'm not feeling like I'm getting what I need, you know, you've got to stop and say, okay, stop. Yeah. <laughs> stop. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You got to get in touch with your own authentic no. And you know what, when you mentioned about him having probably even something from his childhood about this thing about not being able to say no, that's certainly where I would go at it as a coach is to go, what happened in your life that made it not okay to say no? Was it either that you let somebody down once and therefore you always say yes from now on? Or, or did you get let down once and decided that you must always then you know, say yes. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I do the work that you do too, although I call it something mm -hmm. different. But a lot of the time when you do discover what happened in your past and you do uncover a story, it doesn't actually change the story because there is work that we need to do to change a story because we've repeated that story over many years, you know, and a thought becomes a belief and a, a belief becomes set in stone. And so to sometimes change that, that it takes practice. A lot of people think that they can change their limiting ideas about themselves in an instance, but it does take practice. It does, it does. take creating a new story, creating a, an emotion around that new story, experience around that new story, and living into that new story and having memory of the new story to practice thinking over and over and over again. Because he, he knew exactly, we went into his past, he knew exactly why he couldn't say no. He had a very disabled sister. They were both adopted and, and she was mentally disabled very severely. And his parents found it hard to cope and nobody ever did the washing up or washed the clothes. And he said he never saw the surface of the dining room table. There were like 15 cats in the house and two chain smokers. And so he lived in a very incredibly difficult environment and he felt it was his responsibility to look after everybody. Mm -hmm. So he was very present to that story. It didn't change the way he felt though. <laughs> no, you're you're right. And, and that's the thing in that, you know, knowing the story doesn't change it. That just means you're aware of it. Yeah. And and actually it's interesting you bring that up, Karen, because I talk to a lot of people on my show who were at one time psychoanalysts and psychotherapists uh -huh. and who now are doing this a whole new form of coaching. Yeah. And a lot of them actually have studied with Kathleen Hendricks. And the reason I think that the newer form of coaching works better is because in the old old school of psychotherapy was you just help people to figure out what happened 
but mm -hmm. then the, so what you know <laughs> but that doesn't really make it go away yeah exactly yeah. so i love the new styles that are out there yeah well bruce lipton would say that the subconscious mind is a uncaring unfeeling program system and it doesn't have a, a logical mind so you can't speak to it logically you have to speak to it in a language that it created the belief it's like the code of a website you see the pretty pictures on the website but when you look at the back end it's all code and you have right. to and you have to write the code to change the surface of the website you have to write in the same language the code and he says that that's the same with our subconscious mind and that language is the language of emotion and feeling so that's why i asked you if you did and meditation often accesses the emotion and the feeling so you've got to write with emotion, can't write with just words and logic. And that's where psychotherapy fell down because it was all mm -hmm. psychoanalytic, analytical. So it would work out why things happened and we could understand things, but it didn't change anything. Right. The emotion is what changes it all, that emotional right. reaction. That's why movies are so powerful and media is so powerful because it evokes emotion in us. Like when we watch movies, we cry and we laugh and we've been on this roller coaster ride. We come out of a movie exhausted because we've been on this emotional journey and we were changed because of it, because we've had this emotional reaction to what we've been witnessing. Absolutely. And I want to backstep just a little bit to the part when you were talking about the coding, you know, like on a website, the, yeah. the background code that, you know, with the art of forgetting for me, it's, I'm not trying to write new code for people. At least when I start, it's more about, okay, if you want to rewrite your code, we need to get rid of the old code that's in there first, because otherwise you're going to be throwing in new code and it's just going to get so jumbled up. Your system's not going to work and you're going to end up backing up to one of your previous backups. You know, in which the new information you're learning is is going to be gone. It's like, oh, crap, I'm just going to have to go back to a week ago before I learned all this new stuff. And so that's, I, you know, I call uh, The Art of Forgetting affectionately subtitled as, you know, the second to last self-help book you'll ever need, because I'm not here to teach you any new skills or new ways of being or living. What it's about is before you go to take, you know, somebody's new course or seminar or workshop, I just want to help you erase the story that's already there so that now you've got a clean slate to work on. Now your coding is all clear and you can put in new code. So <laughs> that's the way I look at it. You like that analogy, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I do. I'm going to use that. <laughs> uh, your book sounds fascinating. Where can people get a hold of it, Michael? Not until November. I've kind of delayed this uh, purposefully. I was actually in the works with a publishing house. I discovered, as you're probably aware, that, you know, they take so much of the money. And for anybody who's not published a book yet, but is interested in it, any publishing house that you go to, they're still going to want to know how big is your platform? How many right. do you have on your mailing list and your Twitter followers and your Facebook fans? Because they want you to be able to market the book and yeah. sell a lot of copies. And they're still going to take 90% or more. Yeah. So I decided, you know, and especially uh, the advice I was getting from several other published authors is like, hey, if you can publish it yourself, go that route. So I decided to publish it myself, hold off until November so that I could build my platform a little bit more and get a larger audience going on. And and so November 6th is the date that it will be released. Great. Yeah, day before it. my birthday. Day before your birthday, November <laughs> Exactly. 7th. That way I've got something to celebrate on the 7th. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, good on you. Day before your birthday. Yeah. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Now, I've been stalking you on your Facebook page and uh, <laughs> I noticed you've, you've recently got married. Do you want... I did, just a little over a year ago. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about that love story? I love a good love story. Okay. Well, it's a little weird, but uh, it all ties into consciousness, mm -hmm. <laughs> strangely enough. Mm -hmm. So my former wife, and I say former because I think ex-wife just sounds so bad, but, but my former wife, Grace, uh, we divorced consciously. Uh, yeah. We just chose to go our separate ways, but still maintain a wonderful friendship. And we still co-parent our 12-year-old son. We've got a great relationship still. And as a matter of fact, we're going to be writing another book called Conscious Divorce, or at least that's the working title for now. Yeah. And hopefully that'll be out in 2016. Through Grace, I met someone who was working with her and studying with her. And Grace is also a coach as well. Her friend, Megan, who's one of her best friends and, and like I said, works with her, we hit it off very well and we got married a year ago. And that's you know yeah so we double date together actually my my former wife is remarried and and even more than double date her husband and i get along really well and we're taking his kids and my kids uh can't well my son and and his son camping in, in a couple of weeks just just the guys so that is such a great story that's i love mm -hmm. that i love that we need more stories like that really that's, uh, thanks you know i came from a, a family that was my father and mother divorced my father met a younger woman and oh look it was hideous it was just a battleground so mm -hmm. so the experience of divorce for me back then was just absolutely hideous and one of my first boyfriends had uh, married an older woman and then had a young child and got divorced and he wanted me to go to a party at her house and I I was like you're friends with your ex I didn't compute in my reality that that uh -huh. would happen I was about 23 24 at the time and so I went to this party at his ex-wife's house. She embraced me. She hugged me and she wanted to be my friend. And I couldn't understand it because that's not the experience I'd had. So it broke that spell of that just mm -hmm. because you, you don't want to be married to someone anymore doesn't mean that you don't still love them and you can't still party with them and, and have a life with them. So Exactly. Was, yeah. mm -hmm. And especially if there are children involved. Especially. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to really shift the whole paradigm around divorce because, and, and I've got lots of thoughts about marriage in general, but my firm belief is that we are spiritual beings having a human experience yep. and that often we come into a relationship in this physical realm for a spiritual learning. Mm. And when that learning is through, the relationship is over. Mm. And I think the challenge comes about when one party of the two is not aware that it's over or just doesn't want to let go. Mm -hmm. And then that's where conflict starts to arise instead of just going, hey, it's complete. And then you couple with that the fact that, you know, all of the religious based organizations pretty much throughout the world say marriage is for life until death do you part and all this stuff, which I think is a load of crap. I think that's just a, a made up man-made idea that isn't really natural in human nature. So, Well, absolutely. And I think that that idea that love comes from outside of you is the thing that creates most of the trauma in our life because I've watched my daughter go through love affairs and then break up and be heartbroken and it's hard to remind her well it's easy to remind her but it's hard for her to really understand that the love that she felt didn't come from that person it came through her it came mm -hmm. through the love that she felt was the love she was giving not the love she was receiving and that you don't have to stop giving love 
just because you're not with somebody. You don't have to stop giving love and, and don't be exclusive. Give it to everybody. Sex is yeah. another story, but love is, ex- <laughs> <laughs> you know, love is not exclusive. Love is inclusive. And uh, that's where I think when couples break up, as you say, if one if one says, you know, I, I love you, but I don't want to be with you anymore. And then the other one says, but if I can't be with you, I can't have your love. You know, I can't mm-hmm. feel love anymore. I'm sad because I have no love. Esther Hicks from the teachings of Abraham, another teacher of mine, says that any time that we're desperately upset, it's not because of what's happened. It's because we've cut ourselves off from our connection to our own source or our own mm-hmm. soul or our own spirit or a source of love or God, for a better word. Yeah. With our thinking, with what we're thinking, pinches us off from the flow of love that runs through us. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. So congratulations, you. We need more conscious divorce stories out there, I think. Mm, thank you. Thank you. And I, and I realized after I said that, too, there may be some folks out there who are going to really, I might get some hate mail for saying, you know, what I believe about the institution of marriage. And it's not that I don't think marriage is great. I, I do think it's great. But this whole idea that till death do us part, that was certainly not a part of my vows and you know, in either of my marriages, because I do firmly believe that, you know, we, we come together for a reason and when it's done, it's done. And so, and sometimes that reason is I'm going to spend my life with this person and we're going to explore life in a committed relationship for a whole life. And exactly. And, you know, there is choice. Sometimes it's choice is a short period of time together and sometimes it's long and there is infinite choice. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I would agree. Yeah. Oh, it's been so beautiful talking with you today, Michael. You've got, Likewise, Karen. You've got so much to share, and uh, I look forward to hearing more of your podcast shows. If people, well, thank you. If people would like to hear them, where can they go? Uh, they can find me on iTunes, also on my website, I guess would be a good place. If you're having a hard time with iTunes, uh, it is at www.michaelneely.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-N is in November, E-E-L-E-Y.com. And uh, yeah, that's a, the two best places to track me down. Or if, you know, if you've got an Android phone, you could use your Stitcher app or one of the other apps for podcasts. Yeah, fantastic. Stitcher's great, huh? You can listen to podcasts on the phone, in the car, anywhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if you're listening to Art of Forgetting, you can jog your memory. But I'm ching. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Forget I said that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Michael, for chatting with us on Accentuate the Positive. My pleasure. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us for another podcast of Accentuate the Positive Radio. I hope you enjoyed the show. Isn't Michael fantastic? Remember to rate and review Accentuate the Positive Radio on iTunes and also go to our Facebook page and show us your love. You can get updates of podcasts on Accentuate the Positive Radio with Karen Swain on Facebook. Also go to my website karenswain.com slash listen you'll see many of the guests i've interviewed over the last few years thanks again bye for now